Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. This is episode 25, and we are going to be talking about some Ryan Lockett games, specifically the Arzian Trilogy, his games above and below, near and far, and we're going to briefly talk about the new game that's coming out, Now or Never. I'm your Captain Ian, joined by Matt, of course, and my personal favorite guest that we have had on, uh, my wife Tori, is joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me on. I'm so excited. Long time listener, first time guest. So this is this is fun. This is awesome. I feel like weirdly compelled to be nicer to Ian than I normally would be. So I'm going to put that aside <laughs> and remain committed to my uh, journalistic objectivity uh, and treat Ian exactly the same because I'm nothing if not, you know, a man of integrity. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and move on into our soapboxes before we get to our game, of course. So, Matt, what do you have for us this week? Well, I played a really cool new game on Sunday. The Dice Pirates Southern uh, Office down here uh, played our Sunday night game night, and we played The King is Dead, a second edition from uh, Osprey Games. And uh, gotta say, really, really good. I did not know what to expect from this one. I've seen this game floating around on board game Instagram recently, getting a little bit of buzz. But it looked kind of, uh, it has that look of a game that's going to be real dry. It's just got a, a, a multicolored map of uh, Great Britain and a bunch of cubes and wooden cubes and discs. And it just seems like this is a game that's uh, going to involve a... Uh, a deep-seated uh, bit of like history, and uh, it has like a strong GMT games vibes. But I'm happy to say it was much more exciting and interesting than that, and also much more lovely to look at in person. The medieval art and the minimalist components like really worked. But the basic setup here is you are uh, trying to vie for power in England uh, after the uh, titular king has died, and the Scots. The Welsh and the English are all uh, trying to see who's going to uh, crown uh, the next monarch. I didn't read uh, the books. I don't know if this is simulating some actual moment in European history or just some general sense of political conflicts. But uh, it's basically an area control game. There's a bunch of little colored cubes that represent the different factions spread all around the board. And uh, players can take turns moving uh, the Welsh or the Scots or the English around to try to get dominant control of a space. Uh, at different intervals, uh, you'll uh, settle uh, a, a zone, or whoever has the most there uh, takes control of it, and whoever has the most zones at the end wins. Now, you might think that just sounds like every area control game, but the key that makes this game so interesting is that you're not actually playing any particular faction. You're not the Scots, the Welsh, or the English every player can move any set of cubes at any given time rather you're playing uh these kind of figures on the fringe of uh of the conflict trying to influence events so that you are allied with whichever faction is uh ultimately going to be crowned king so you're basically trying to set up a board state at the end so that the faction that you have the most favor with uh wins the game uh, it's really, really challenging, and it's really, really tough, and it's hard to like figure out what your opponents are going to do to mess up your plans. There's three things about the game that make it absolutely fantastic, and then I'll I won't give like a full detailed review. But you um, on your turn, you play a card that lets you rearrange the cubes. You might could swap uh, an English cube for a Welsh cube in two adjacent spaces. 
or something like that. There's various combinations of moves you can make on the board. And then after you play uh, your card, you take another cube from anywhere on the board and put it in front of you. And that signifies you've gained power with that faction. So maybe you grab a blue cube because you're wanting to slowly build up, you know, favor with the Scots and slowly influence things so that the Scots win. The problem is that early in the game, there's a lot of cubes everywhere and taking one uh, from a space doesn't feel like a big deal. But as the game progresses, you realize it becomes a really big deal because even though you may want to gain influence with a particular faction, you're also weakening their presence on the board by taking a cube. So that is a really agonizing choice. It can become, in fact, really uh, in your favor to take a cube from a faction you're not particularly courting interest with because you want to push them behind in a zone and make them lose or something. So that is genius. You need to gain faction. Uh, you need to gain influence with at least one faction, the majority, to even have a shot at winning. But every time you take one of their cubes off the board, you're, you're potentially weakening their state. Love that. The second thing that makes the game great is that you have eight cards to play and only eight cards for the entire game. And they are identical to the cards that all your opponents have. You all have the same moves that you can potentially make. And there's also, there's only eight rounds in the whole game. So hypothetically, you only have enough cards for one card play each round. If you, uh, you can play multiple cards in a round, you can keep playing cards until you pass, and then when everybody passes, you resolve the conflict for that round. But it's really tempting to play multiple cards in a round because you you sort of like you really want to make sure you get done what you want to do but the more cards you play early you'll have no options later in the game so you want to avoid getting sucked into a quagmire and playing too many cards uh that's crazy and the fact that you know the cards your opponent has and if you pay attention to what they're playing you kind of know what's coming that's an added layer of like tension and strategy and then the final thing uh that makes the game great in my mind is that the order in which the uh different zones are going to resolve on the board that's public information at the start you deal out a hand of cards and so you know based on the cards and the order that they're played that like you know this section of the board is going to resolve next however one of the actions you can take is to reorder that at any time so suddenly the game can change like out of the blue with a card play it uh it was wild it was tense it was really really fun and the best thing about it is it played in about 30 35 minutes which is just enough time the fact that you can get a really thinky strategy game to the table and knock it out in under an hour, that's awesome. You know, it's perfect for a, a multi-game game night. It was uh, about as easy to learn as that rough rules explanation I just gave. Just really, really good. And the art style and the presentation just really works. They use this sort of authentic feeling medieval art on all the cards and very minimalist design. The whole thing is just uh, really fantastic. Yeah, no, I've been looking at uh, pictures as you've been describing it, and I'm really into this sort of, like you said, it's like a medieval illuminated manuscript-inspired art style. And I go crazy for good game art. I mean, one of my other favorites is a game that we played at one of our last game nights, uh, Salem 1692. Yes. That one that has sort of the almost woodcut-inspired art, from what I remember. Um yeah, super cool. And also, I just sort of want to buy this. I'm looking at least at the second edition, which has just this really cool box art. So I kind of want to buy it just to put it on the shelf to display it at home. Yeah, it looks really cool. If you just look at the game setup on the table and just see the cubes and think like, ah, that looks a little bland. It's much more of a looker uh, in person. And the simple cubes, uh, this is one of the games where like the cubes are the right component 
I think like little miniatures of like horsemen or uh, something like that, or like little castles would be too cluttered. With this, you can quickly look across the board and see uh, who has the majority in each space, and therefore, where do I need to try to rearrange things to shift things in favor? Um, it's really great. And yeah, I think the comparison to uh, Salem and the whole uh, Dark City series uh, with those little books, that's very, that's a good, that's an app comparison because it's using like good, like period art to kind of like make the game's theme come alive. And if there is one thing we all love, it's a good solid theme. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, this is actually kind of a good game to segue into the discussion about uh, Ryan Lockett because that interplay of like art, theme, and style and design is like, it comes through in like all of his stuff. That's definitely something we're going to come back to a lot because like you said, it's, you can't separate those games from the art they are they're all put together but of course that's something we're going to get to in our main discussion tori i know you have a soapbox that you wanted to talk about as well what do you got for us yeah i guess i have a little baby soapbox because i'm not used to ranting on the podcast like you guys do every week so i'll just give it my best shot but uh i got really annoyed with steam this past weekend So me and Ian have some friends uh, that live out of state. So one of the main ways that we've been hanging out recently is playing Charterstone on Steam. And Charterstone is a great game. It's one of my favorite games. I mean, I love a legacy game, which I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I really, really enjoy the campaign in Charterstone and really enjoy hanging out out with our friends. And uh, Steam was just bringing us down the other night. I don't know what the issue was with the servers or what, but it kept kicking us out of the game and back into the lobby and everyone's game was frozen and nobody knew whose turn it was. And it was just really frustrating. So I don't know. I guess my soapbox is kind of generally just about it's really annoying when you're trying to play games online and the game isn't cooperating or the you know platform you're playing on isn't cooperating and... I don't know. I It's one of those things that, um, you know, you don't really have to worry about when you're playing in-person games <laughs> and then I you know. go to play <laughs> online. It's funny. It makes me think of our discussion about like apps and uh, integration of like apps into board games and how board games are getting increasingly digital. And you're right. I mean, one of the wonderful uh, joys of analog gaming is that you don't have uh, glitches. You don't have crashes. <laughs> You don't have the internet acting weird or whatever. You just can kind of like if you can uh, if you can achieve the impossible task of getting a group of adults to actually uh, commit to a meeting and coming together to play the game. You can just play. And so you're right. I mean, uh, digital tabletop experiences are becoming more and more popular, but they do sort of like they introduce all those variables that we were all sort of trying to get away from with analog gaming. So it is a weird dynamic. I love that you guys have been playing Charterstone again, though. I know, Ian, you mentioned that last week. That is still such a like a fond memory of mine, uh, The uh, going through that Charterstone campaign together and uh, building out our little, uh, little world, our little villages. I feel like that's one of the reasons that our board game group became so strong, is that we played a campaign game like that pretty early into us coming over to your house to eat all the food out of your kitchen and uh, <laughs> keep you up late at night. And yeah, just it gave us a reason to keep hanging out and keep playing. And yeah. yeah, and it's so fun. I love the art in that game so much. I think, and that's something that actually, this would be a fun thing to talk about another soapbox, but you know, building a, a game night group. I remember 
when we first started going to your house and first started playing games and every week it was like do you, do you think he'll invite us back again Can, do you think we're okay <laughs> we always made desserts that we had to reason to go and you would invite us back but yeah. doing a legacy game it made it clear that you're expected to come back yeah and so if you want to build that if you really want to i think that set the tone absolutely and made it a, a common thing for us to just go over and play that game and so when we started spreading out there was still the expectation of going back that really really made it something special you guys were wondering if i was gonna invite you and i was just like are they gonna show up again i'm so nervous you know <laughs> and then we were always there and then you were always there <laughs> yeah absolutely uh yeah we didn't eat, we didn't eat very healthy in those first couple of years uh, you say that as if we all eat healthy now <laughs> <laughs> i have you know that i just had a uh, delicious le- lettuce wraps for dinner and i'm washing it down with a beer see that's it's all about balance in life Hey, beer is just grain, and grain is good for you. This so. is just bread in a cup. That's all this is. Matt, you're definitely the healthiest person I know. That's that's mm, not a lie at all. Boy, that's a that that would be a sad state of affairs. I definitely do miss playing board games in person. It is frustrating. It's nice to be able to play games remotely but it can be frustrating to do it in person but i do want to move on we're actually going to go ahead and segue into our game bitter board gamers Woo-hoo. i have a couple exciting games i think it'll be fun and a couple really good reviews you guys excited yes i, I am, love I'm playing pumped. games that's why i'm here yeah all righty so of course if you don't know bitter board gamers the game where i'm going to find some one star reviews from board game geek and i'm going to go ahead and read them you guys have to decide what game the review is from. All right, so your first review. Single D6s for fights and quests is good enough for Americans, but for me, it's a no-no. <laughs> Terrible and antiquated idea that killed Civ and others too. Light kind of legacy, very courageous mix of three totally different genres. It would have been a 10 if they could replace dice rolls with drawing cubes from a bag. Want to try it out, but for now, I will not let it into my house <laughs> i will so not dramatic. i will not let it into my house sir get this get this filth out get thee behind me <laughs> what now did, did this person say i would like them to replace dice rolling with drawing cubes from a bag what is that's not even a mechanic like, <laughs> that, that's not that's not even a thing that you see in games and also, like, that sounds so boring. Like, dice rolling, at least, that's a thing. You're throwing something, it clacks around, there's a sensory experience involved. And how's it any less random to just, like, draw a cube from a bag that says, like, congratulations, you're dead, or the orc killed you. You know, like, that's stupid. I don't even know what game this person's talking about, and I'm already mad about it. I'm just... <laughs> My favorite part of the review is the person calling out Americans for having bad game design is... Uh... I mean, look, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go all Captain America on that and get real patriotic, but I was a little offended. Um, I was a little hurt, uh, personally. But as the, uh, I feel like the last few episodes have had this recurring timeline or recurring theme of me uh, defending dice as a concept. And uh, once again, I feel I'm called upon to the field of battles to defend dice. Dice are fun. Dice are really good. You know who else likes dice? Ryan Lockett. It's true. He does, in fact, like dice. I will be your comrade in arms, Matt, because I also like dice, and I like it for the same reason that you described. It's tactile. It's active. It makes makes a nice, satisfying clack sound on the table. I mean, I don't know who would rather reach into a bag, but... Let's see. Uh, 
Okay, the other thing that stuck out of my mind is that an intriguing mix of three genres, and that is that feels like that should be a big clue, but it's not ringing a bell. You got a, another review for us? Let me go ahead and read you my second review. Absolutely the worst board game I've ever played. <laughs> the turns are mired in so much to consider and so many tiny icons that all mean different things and so many different currencies that equal different things even amongst themselves that even if you know what you're using your turn for, you're inevitably wrong and will have to change your plan. There's no way to properly strategize because there's nothing you have control over. It was a waste of three hours trying to get to the point of understanding half the rules. Not to mention that for trying to be a game about storylines and fulfilling character goals, there's no encouragement to do that. And by attempting to do that, you're often hamstringing your ability to win. At least the art is nice. Oh my god, is this about near and far? It is near and far. What? No! Oh my gosh. I'm so sad that this person had such a bad experience. That makes me so disappointed. Uh, Now that, now that you've said near and far, Mr. Sense, drawing cues from a bag would be... It would just bring so much joy to that game. <laughs> you know, this game, this game of like whimsical art and storytelling and uh, people riding around on uh, giant kiwi birds. You know what it needs? Cubes in a bag. Cubes. Cubes, cubes in, a bag. in a bag. It needs cubes in a bag. <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I I look forward to talking about Near and Far in a few minutes and more in depth. It of the two, it's my least favorite, but I would, and I have my minor qualms with it. But it's like it's one of the calling it one of the worst games you ever played is bananas. Uh, yeah. And the dice rolling. Uh, anyway, there's so many ways to mitigate the dice rolling in that game. It's definitely one of the games that, like you said, we'll talk about it later. It's just really sad to see somebody who didn't enjoy it as much as we did. Not, you know, understandably, not everybody gets every game. Talking about somebody who didn't quite get a game, I'm going to move on to the next game. Here is your first review. This game just drags on and on. Gives me time to ponder important decisions while playing the game, like what I should eat for dinner, what color I should have painted my wall, and what game to never play again. It overstayed its welcome about five minutes into the game. Oh, so harsh. That's brutal. I mean, I have to admit, I have felt like that person before, but I don't know what game they're talking about just yeah. based on that information. Yeah, I mean, it's it's long and it's boring. Is that those are the things? I mean, that that could be a lot of games. Let's be honest. That that, that could be a lot of games that I have in my current collection. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a clue. This game, I will admit, this one is probably going to be a little bit difficult, but. There are some hilarious reviews. I want to read some of the funniest reviews real quick, and then I'll read one that I'll probably give it away right away. So my two favorite reviews. The first one is, you just want it to end. <laughs> okay, I got to ask just to get this out of the way. Is this blood rage? It is not blood rage, <laughs> but you're, you're close. You're close. The you're second close. review, uh -huh. the second review that I thought was amazing, No. No. That's the whole review. Is it, <laughs> no. is it Twilight Imperium? Not Twilight Imperium. <laughs> We're just going to start naming all the games that have taken us forever on a Saturday afternoon. So, I'm going to go ahead and give you one last one. This should give it away. Better than Exploding Kittens, at least, but a lot of take that when you're nearly winning, and it just drags the game on and on and on and on and on. Is it Unstable Unicorns? It's Unstable Unicorns. Oh! <laughs> Unstable Unicorns is not a game. Exploding Kittens is not a game. These are just like 
card paloozas with like a loose set of rules. Uh, I don't like any of those games in that entire genre. <laughs> uh, don't enjoy them. Uh, no, I mean, alienating your main fan fan base right I now. I know. Yeah, there's a huge crossover. <laughs> Everyone loves exploding kittens. Look, there's <laughs> a true. the Venn diagram of people who love like the oatmeal and Mac is like almost a perfect circle. But still, I have to just speak up and say uh, <laughs> I don't like those games. They're just they they are they're too brutal. They're not fun. Like any game that just basically has the mechanic of I play a card and now you can't do the thing that you just wanted to do. But but why does that allow? Just because the card said it. Like that's I hate that. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I guess now that I've said it out loud, I guess there like there are games that I like that do have that. But it feels especially uh, mean spirited in a game like this where there's nothing at stake other than just I played a card. Well, uh, I'll play another card. Uh. I will never forget until the day I die. One Sunday that we were all the Dice Pirates were all together and I said something to Dice Pirate Max that I can't remember what it was even, but it irked him enough that he made it his personal mission to destroy me and almost make me cry at that table. And the game ended with people shouting across the table, who hurt you when you were a child? This this was the game that almost killed the dice pirates. It almost sank the good ship dice pirates right here. <laughs> Unstable unicorns. Uh, so I say I say no to that. You know, if the game had a bag of cubes, though, could we would we feel differently about it? <laughs> <laughs> if you were drawing ba- drawing cubes out of a bag, you might be happier. Uh, this this is one of those games. I mean, much like exploding kittens, it's either good for to just play casually, or if maybe you've had a couple drinks at a party or something. Like it's better to play if you're strategizing. It's it you can't play it to win. You can't treat it like a game. You have to be willing to laugh at its eccentricities and silliness. If you're yeah. if you're in it to to win it and take, treat it like a real game, it's gonna let you down. It's like betrayal at House on the Hill. That's just a that's just a ride. You're just go, you're just getting on that one just to go. Absolutely, it's an experience. I agree. For the record, I agree with this bitter board gamer. I think keep the unicorns in the stable. This is the only bitter board <laughs> gamer that I actually 100% agree with. Me and you, Tori. Yeah, I'm like, you can take bitter, you can take unicorns, and that that's a what you got to do with that unicorn. That is fantastic. <laughs> we are we are all bitter board gamers on this day. We are going to go ahead and move on to our main topic now. We're going to be talking about Ryan Lockett's games above and below the Arzian trilogy. We're going to go ahead and get to that in just a second. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates. And we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic this week, which is the uh, collected works of one of our favorite uh, designers. In particular, we're going to focus on two uh, of his games that are uh, two of our absolute favorites. And that is Ryan Lockett and his interconnected trilogy of games that includes Above and Below and Near and Far and then the upcoming Now and Never. Uh, Ian, I know you've been doing some research and kind of looking into the history of these games and kind of his uh, his background as a designer, so why don't you kick us off and give us a little intro to this topic. Yeah, so obviously, like you said, we're going to be talking about Ryan Lockett and the games that he puts out through Red Raven Studios, which is the studio that he owns and operates. What we're going to be talking about is specifically the Arzian trilogy. The um, Arzian is this world that he has created. One of the things about Ryan Lockett 
as a designer is that instead of creating mechanics and a game that he then sells to somebody who puts a theme around it, the art, the story, the mechanics, everything is done by him, by the people he works with. It's all done in-house. Everything is put together as a cohesive whole. It's why these games often tell a story in a very direct way, why they feel so tied together. So talking about like the Arzian trilogy, he has this world that he's put a lot of his games in and each game you see a little bit more of the history of this world. And so the three main games, of course, that we're going to talk about are Above and Below, Near and Far, and Now or Never, the newest game that is going to be releasing this year. So when we're talking about a Ryan Lockett game, they're predominantly worker placement games. They are, you know, very much kind of very heavily influenced by the Euro style. You have various workers, whether it be, you know, one that you're moving around or multiple that you can do different actions with. You're going to be managing the resources of how many turns you can take, what you can do with your turns. There's also a choose your adventure style that he has in a lot of his games. And you see the progression of this where, especially in his first two games, when you go to take an action, somebody will read you a little story and then you have to make a decision very much like the choose your adventure books that a lot of us grew up reading. So that's one of the most interesting parts to his games because it actually brings you into the story and it makes you pay attention and really lets you have a narrative hook to the actions that you're taking. And then one of the last things he's been doing more is he's been building stories through atlas gaming where the maps that he has instead of just having one map that you may flip over you will go through a book and you keep moving and the story keeps changing this is something that we see near and far we also see it in sleeping gods that he came out with recently which also bucked the trend of having really an end game where you can play that game for as long as you want and that you can just take breaks so it's really an overarching story and i think so Getting into these games, really one of the things that he's doing is he's kind of changing a lot of the approaches we have towards games. He's incorporating new elements. He's approaching them in different ways than we normally see. And so as we step through these games, I kind of want to see how he's improved and how he's changed the way he does certain things, especially maybe the way he approaches story. So obviously the first game we're going to talk about is Above and Below, one of his earlier games that he released. It's still... An absolute classic and that game is it's definitely one of my favorite games it's fairly simple it's actually probably i think one of the easier games that he's put out it's very easy to teach it's a game that tori and i do teach to new people when we want to try to introduce them to maybe slightly heavier games it's very much a worker placement game and you're each turn you're going to be recruiting new villagers that you're going to have that you're going to be able to go on adventures with you're going to be able to build buildings you're trying to create a village build up more resources to score more points at the end it's a very tightly designed very narratively driven game but i'd like to get your guys's feel for just above and below and how do you guys enjoy that game what do you remember from it what is your takeaway from that game i mean for me the first thing that strikes you about above and below and it's the same thing with all of ryan lockett's games is this incredible sense of like visual style he has a beautiful, uh, somewhere between uh, like cartoony, but also uh, almost painterly like quality with his art. It's very distinctive. The worlds that he draws, the architecture of the buildings that he creates and populates. He has an incredible sense of place in his style. It's beautiful, awesome fantasy art. 
and so above and below is just a joy to sit down and and behold its its pieces and all, all the little faces of the villagers you encounter their glorious mustaches uh and other <laughs> little attributes that he puts in and frog people and other mysteries so i think you almost uh i do kind of want to kind of pause even before we like really pause into the games uh d dive into the games and just mention that that's one of the things that's so special about him is that I think he's probably one of our few game designers who's also the game's artist, which means you immediately know when you're looking at a Ryan Lockett game, whether it's one of the games in the Arzon trilogy or uh, his space games, the Empire of the Void series or Islebound or some of the others. Like They just are distinctively uh, visually unique. I think that's great. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it gives the game a nice unified kind of holistic aesthetic, which you don't always get perfectly in board games. I won't name the examples I'm thinking of, but I'm thinking of some. And yeah, I love that about Ryan Lockett. Um, I also, to sort of bounce off the comment that you made earlier, Ian, this is a game that we introduce to people. Basically, we meet people and... We're getting to know them, and we say we're into board games. And they say, oh, I love Catan. <laughs> and we say, oh, you know, if you love Catan, maybe you'd like this other game. And we'll try to get them to play above and below. And I don't think there's a single person that we've shown that game to who they didn't immediately love it, immediately say, like, I want to play this again, you know. And it started some really wonderful board game friendships. So I'm very grateful to this game. I love it so much. It's just so fun to play also. That's actually a really great uh, thought that I hadn't made the connection to. But like, I feel like the Catan to Above and Below Pipeline is a great way to get people into the board game hobby. Because mm -hmm. there there is very loosely some overlap between Catan and Above and Below if you are just kind of dipping your toes into the hobby because when you sit down to play above and below, it's like, okay, I, I, we're villagers, we're building up, we're getting resources. So if you're, and there's dice, uh, and there's that mix of dice play in above and below, just like there is a Catan. So yeah, that's actually a great segue. It's like, you have you played Catan? Okay, let's check this game out. And it's an immediately better game and more satisfying than Catan in almost every way. Uh, the things that I like about uh, Above and Below and Near and Far is that they're not afraid to mash up these two worlds of the Euro game and the Ameritrash game. And it is funny that we've had this kind of running discussion about randomness and games and how much randomness is too much, how much luck is too much. Do we like games that have a more predictable uh, uh, set of like mechanics that you can learn and master? Or do we like games that are like a little bit chaotic? And Ryan Lockett's games really uh, mesh those two worlds. Like you have in Above and Below, you have the overworld stuff where you're building your little town up and it's very satisfying to watch it grow. And you can kind of predictively generate victory points through the acquisition of new buildings. And so there's that that feels very traditionally Euro. But then you dive down into the underworld you, in the below and you have these role playing like adventures of strange encounters and you roll dice to resolve them. And that introduces a manageable element of luck to where scoring a big win in the underworld can give you a big boost, but also losing in the underworld doesn't throw you completely out of the game. I think it has just the right amount of luck and dice-driven drama to make the games memorable. 
that's the part of the game that I think is really the strongest. And yes, like you said, there are actions that you can do as you get more villagers, as you start to recruit more, you can take more actions on your turn. There's the classic, you know, you can gather some resources, you can build some buildings that are available, you can recruit more people. But the best thing you can do is you can send your villagers down to adventure in the underworld. And that's when you get into the the dice rolling like you said the the kind of a uh, ameritrash part of the game where somebody will pull out a scenario and they're going to read it out like oh you're traveling down a path in the underground and you see a rickety bridge and you also see a safe path to the left which one are you going to take and then it'll give you options and it'll say okay well this one's harder and this one's easier but you know that if you go for the harder one you have a better chance of getting something good and so there's a lot of you know give and take there and depending on who you send for the adventure you have a higher chance of succeeding some people are better at adventuring some people are better at building so you have to decide who you're going to send and there's that's one of the things that i i like a lot about ryan lockett's games is that there's a lot of mitigation to the dice rolls because you can decide you can do something and you can be unsure if you'll get there or not but you can also be safe enough to where if you don't quite make it there are mechanics that he gives you to allow you to just step a little bit further. You can exhaust some of your people. So maybe you can't use them the next turn, but if you just desperately don't want to miss out on the benefits you might get, you can do that. And it does it's not great, but at least there are options that you have. So one bad dice roll doesn't feel like the end of the world. And also, I think one of the reasons this works well with new players is that storybook feeling. Because if it was if you take that away from the game i think it would be a far drier less enjoyable experience but when you go down and you send your people in there even if you're not doing well at the game you get to read a little story and you get to feel kind of that tense moment of like oh did i did i save the person from you know the under under bear or something like that and you know sometimes it happens and sometimes <laughs> you just barely don't make it yeah you know the <laughs> underworld bears i just you know, I don't, I don't, there's a reason he writes these things, and I don't, because he's better at it. No, I'm, I'm definitely writing a story about the underbear now. I love that I just, phrase. I just like the fact that the monster name you came up with rhymes with underwear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a mistake to bring you two on together. This yeah, it, it, it may have been. Uh, no, I think you really raised some good points, because... Uh, the, the the balance that he's achieved with above and below is it's a game that's going to really be a crowd pleaser whether you like narrative driven adventure style games or uh, a more mechanical uh build your little town and watch it grow kind of thing like those can be that does doesn't feel like those should work together but they really do in this game and that allows different types of gamers to come together it's like somebody that may balk at sitting down to play like I don't know, you know, Castles of Burgundy or some other little build your tableau thing would, but you say it, but wait, there's, uh, there's adventures, there's, uh, there's caverns to explore, there's treasure, there's underbears, you know, they're going to want to come and uh, play that. Uh, and that's really cool. Also, this may not be a popular uh, thing, uh, but I personally love any game that allows you to read to the other players. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that. I think, uh, a little bit of story and like getting to, uh, you know, do a do a weird voice and a little bit of narrative. I'm I'm there for that. Fully agree. I love any chance I get to break out a silly voice and do a dramatic reading for my friends. It's fun. I find that when we play with our friends, we usually are uh, fighting a little bit over who gets to read a given scenario. Yes. So we have to we have to carefully take turns. It's a really fun aspect of the game. 
and you know sort of like we've been saying it's just everything really works really smoothly together the only real like problem i have is just that the game is often over so fast you're playing and then by the time you feel like you're getting going the game is just over but that's something that kind of happens a lot within ryan lockett games and that's yeah. actually a point that i want to get into as we move into near and far where you do find the game ending a little bit too quickly so we're going to step into near and far now the second game that he came out with and this took a lot of very similar elements you still have the storybook that you're going to read from you still have adventures that you're going to want to get to that there's still resource management however it's different in the sense that it's not so much of a worker placement game anymore as it is instead of having multiple people to send and do things you have one person and you're moving it to to different options so it's still worker placement, but you only get one worker and you're moving around. So it's almost more of an adventure game. And when you include some of the expansions, you can not only go adventuring in the world. This is where the Atlas comes in. Each um, each page in this book that you're given is a new map. And so you can sh you can switch to new maps and do different configurations of the world and visit new stories and see a lot of new stuff that you wouldn't get. This also allows him to make the stories more connected. One of the things about Above and Below is that you just get a random story out of the whole book. In Near and Far, you are given stories specifically from the map that you're on at that current moment. And so you often find little connections together. There's one map where as you go, each time you're moving further and further out into the world there's a progression of you being able to travel further as you go through the the game you in one map you start to find slime that's left here and there and you finally get to the very end and you realize what's been causing it and you're able to stop the monster and it's a very climactic moment and you get that because you get to actually experience a continuous story so that's one of the best parts of near and far near and far changes a, a lot from above and below but there's definitely still a lot of similarities Tori, you and I actually played through the entire campaign. Unlike Above and Below, there was actually a campaign that you can play in this mode. How did you feel about Near and Far after coming from Above and Below? Oh my gosh. Uh, honestly, the first time we played, I was a little bit overwhelmed because I think the first time we played, we didn't use the Amber Mines expansion, but it still felt like oh, there's all this other stuff I can do now. I have to put my little person in this town and decide if I want to go to the general store or go to the farm and get bread. There were just a lot more decisions to make, at least it felt like to me. So the first time we played it, I didn't really enjoy it so much. But then the second time we played it, I think we did use the Amber Mines expansion. And... After kind of getting used to it, I got way more into it, and I would say that now it's my favorite in the series. Um, I mean, you know, not having played Now or Never, obviously, but I definitely prefer it to Above and Below, in part just because there are extra things to do. I definitely agree that one of the problems with Near and Far that also happens with Above and Below is that basically as soon as I get my engine going and I've got all my people, I've got my perfect little kill squad that's ready to go out into <laughs> the desert and <laughs> fight some bandits. As soon as I get that group together and I feel like I've got enough resources that I can start buying artifact cards, the game ends. And there's always stuff that I wish I'd been able to do. Uh, I will say I really loved playing with Ian on our campaign mode 
because we had a system uh, because when you play, there are different little book type uh, tokens or like they're like these little red tomes on a little circular token and you put them on different adventure spots on the board. And then when you land on one, you get to read and encounter and, you know, progress the story. And Ian and I created a system pretty much without having to say anything. Like, we just did it. Where we would always make sure that we got the same amount. Um, So if, you know, one person got three and the other person got four one round, the next time we played, the person who got three would get four and the person who, you know, got four last time would get three. So we tried to balance it out. And I feel like that was a good system because it made it so that we were actually getting to progress our own individual stories through the campaign enough that it didn't feel one-sided or anything. Yeah, uh, I so, love that. Yeah, it was nice. I love that. That actually addresses one of my major uh, problems that I have with this game is that unlike in Above and Below, you can't just at will do uh, the narrative adventure stuff because in Above and Below, you just say like, I'm going into the underworld. So you pick up the book and you do... A, a passage but in near and far you have to progress on the world map over to one of these book spaces before you get to engage with uh what is my favorite part of the game which is the narrative adventure stuff uh it's very possible in a game of near and far if you're up against somebody who's really good and very mechanical about building their character up and charging all over the board that they could get all the book spaces or the vast majority of them before you get there which i can really undercut your enjoyment of the game because absent doing those dice rolly adventure stuff it does lack some charm. It's still a really good game, but that's a that's a challenging part of it. So I like that you guys sort of the great advantage of playing as a couple. You can kind of arrive at these uh, friendly, like a friendly little house rule that ensures everyone's having a good time. Uh, I agree completely, though, Tori, that at first glance, uh, near and far is a bit inscrutable. And I think that's the most like serious criticism I have for the game. It's hardly a bad game by any measure, but it's doing a lot. There's uh, all these spaces in town that you have to learn. There's uh, sort of esoteric rules about how the movement works in the game and how your being exhausted goes and when do I camp and like how do I do this and uh, what is dueling and should I ever duel? The answer is never. You should never duel. There's no advantage to ever doing it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's just, it's a lot. And the game doesn't like present itself, I don't think, very well, like right out the gate. So if you've played Near and Far and you didn't like it, I would say give it another shot. It's it's worth learning its its intricacies to realize how it all holds together. And you're like, oh, this is a really good marriage of the Euro uh, worker placement aesthetic with adventure trappings all around it. it. It's just a more further like realization of what he was trying to do with Above and Below. There's definitely a lot more actions that you can take especially when you add the mines expansion which gives you in many ways another adventure area to pass through the magic expansion which i do believe that playing with those is the best way to play it gives you a lot more options and i think that despite the fact that yes when you do play with those expansions it just adds even more the one of the um dice pirate dennis played with us and it was his first time playing and we didn't realize it was his first time playing, so we jumped in with both the, with the expansions, and uh, it, it's probably the most miserable I've seen him. I We're bad quite friends. Bad. Like, yeah, um, it was, it was yeah. so. It's so much. It really is so much. And like you said, that's definitely one of the. That's one of the biggest criticisms you can throw at the game is just that you wouldn't bring somebody new to board games no. into this because it would take so long for them to understand kind of the the 
the flow of the game and where to go. One of the things that Near and Far does interesting though, one of the interesting things about it is that it provides a couple different ways to play. You can just play a one-off, but there is the campaign that Tori and I played through. There's also a character campaign. You have special characters, and so in the main campaign, as you play through, one of the things that are added are side quests. So you can go through and maybe one of the stories will give you a follow-up story. So you may have things that go back and forth. For instance, the main villain of the overall story, the Red King, we went through and Tori unfortunately loosed him from an underground cell oh, that no. he was held in. And then throughout yeah, the bad, rest guys. of the game... <laughs> Throughout the rest of the game, we kept finding him and we kept running into him and trying to stop him until we got to the very end of the campaign. So it was really neat to get this sort of expanding storyline as you go through the entire story, as you progress through each of these maps, because he knows what order you're going to be doing things, you're actually able to get kind of this overarching storyline. The one downside, though, is because you are limited on the number of story places that you have on the map, you can end up in a situation where it feels like sometimes you miss some of the story because you might have a side quest that overwrites a, a story. So sometimes it feels like maybe you're not getting everything. And something that we did is we did make sure that we were going to be getting all of the tomes because we wanted the story. But sometimes that meant that instead of doing the best play for points, we would just let the game run out. We'd be like, I won't end the game I won't end the game this turn. I'll let you get to that last story because I want to hear what happens. So mm -hmm. I won't end the game yet because you're going to move through the tents that you're getting rid of to end the game very quickly. Yeah. That's going to happen as you move forward. So that's probably my biggest problem with that with it is that if you really want to get the story, you have to be you have to be willing to do that with your other players. Yeah, I want to talk about the tents for a second because that's actually my biggest <laughs> problem with near and far and it's interesting hearing you guys describe your appearance your experience playing it together as a legacy game because it feels really well suited to a pair of players who are kind of rooting for each other to have a good time with it and luxuriate in the story a little more if you sit down and play a single one-off session and you treat it like a traditional game of just like i'm here to win you can drive this game to a really fast resolution in a way that's super unsatisfying for the other players. One of the key mechanics of this game is that as you explore the world map, you will at various points camp and you pop a little wooden uh, tent from your tableau down onto the board to indicate that I camped here. The first player to exhaust all of their uh, tents uh, wins the game. What well, doesn't say win the game, ends the game, and then you go into final scoring. And there's a strong incentive to want to be the first to do that. You unlock lots of little bonuses along the way. You unlock bonus points at the end of the game for unlocking all of your tents. Uh, if you're winning, if you feel like you're ahead on points over other players, no reason to put on the brakes. You just start camping as often as you can. And so the game can quickly snowball to a rapid and sort of unsatisfying end. And that's one of the reasons I bounced off this game a bit the first few times I played it, because I wanted it to be slower. I, part of me wanted this to be a three-hour a uh, ridiculous game that you got to really uh, unpack some story, do a lot of adventuring uh, instead of it being more mechanical than that. So that's just something to think about. I d it does hear, hearing you guys talk, I do feel like there's some real value in uh, playing the, both the legacy version as opposed to a one-off and then also playing with somebody that's going to like want you to like have a good experience. 
Yeah, I think that was an important part of my experience with the game for sure, is that we essentially treated the game like that was just our weekly date night was Mm -hmm. going through. So, I mean, we were essentially... I mean, we were definitely playing competitive because, you know, it's us, but (laughs) there was a co-op element to it that I think was really necessary in order for both of us to enjoy it as much as we did. Yeah. And that's where, like, to to be fair, and I think, you know, we we saw this with the review in Bitter Board Gamers, that if you want to play it for the story you are going to have to work together to get that because, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not to say it's a bad game. It's a very well-designed game and it's it's very fun and the gameplay loop really pulls you in, but you will potentially miss out on a lot of story if you're playing optimally, which can potentially be a detriment. You know, really depends on how you want to approach the game. But I do think that it's it's interesting to see how he is kind of changing his approach to the story being involved in the game, trying to push it in a certain direction instead of making it something that happens constantly. It's definitely there's definitely a difference in his yeah in his approach in this game. Well, you know, Above and Below is an interesting experiment in that it doesn't actually tell a story. It's more evocative. It sort of evokes it sort of evokes a sense of like place. And you go into the underworld and like you encounter strange beings, frog people, and weird magic and. Y- it doesn't really matter that the game ends uh, sort of abruptly and above and below because there was no central narrative, but you do get a sense of a, of a world at the periphery. And I really like that, but you're right. When you're far, it's like, he's trying to tell a specific story. There's all these, there's talk of like a looming kind of threat in this ancient temple or fortress or something. It's been a long time since I've played it, but there's definitely this sense that like, I need to be invested in like what's happening here, but it all comes at you so fast. I think it, I haven't played it yet, but it seems like he's sort of reached a happy medium of what he's trying to do with his storytelling in Sleeping Gods, which is a game that doesn't actually have a defined ending. So we've gotten rid of this point of, you've gotten rid of this tension of like the game ending abruptly. You just play Sleeping Gods until you've had enough of it and you get to unpack as much story as you want. Uh, I think Sleeping Gods feels like the ultimate realization of that date night couple playing a game and just having an adventure together. This is just me basically saying, if one of you guys want to give me Sleeping Gods as a Christmas present, I'd be down with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that'll be your anniversary gift. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Year. Thank you. Thank you. Sleeping yeah. Gods is a game that I really do want to play for those exact reasons. I've I've heard some people describe it as is really kind of the the magnum opus of of his like board game design, which is is a big term, but I think it really points to that's sort of the game he's been trying to make. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's a game I do want to talk about at some point, but it is interesting to see kind of the, the difference in these three games specifically and how he's approached those. And kind of the last thing I want to talk about with near and far is that in above and below, everyone has the exact same actions. Everyone does the exact same thing. In Near and Far, you start to get a certain amount of asymmetry in the cards that you pick up. Different cards will give you different abilities. So there's a little bit of asymmetry that you build throughout the game. As we move into Now or Never, he actually embraces asymmetry, where each player, each character that you play as, actually does have a specific ability that is unique to them. Something that he hasn't done in the previous two games, you actually have something that only you can do. And it's a very different approach to that so i know you guys haven't played now or never before but i have taken a little bit of a deep dive into the game and i kind of just want to talk about some of the ways he's doing things different and kind of throw that to you guys so one of the most interesting things about it is that it actually 
Um, well, it does have a campaign, but if you're not playing the campaign, the storybook is actually not there. There is no book. You're not reading out of it. You're not doing any of those adventures. Huh. It's completely absent from the game. Now, you do have quest cards that have quite a bit of flavor text. So you're sort of you're running out, you're doing qu quests, you sort of get a similar feel to it. But unless you're playing the campaign, you actually don't have the storybook to the game, which is I think is really interesting. Like that's It feels like a departure from these two games. That does feel different. And I feel like that would really change the gaming experience for everyone around the table. Because one of the things I like so much about having the storybook to read out of is that even if it isn't your turn, everyone kind of gets involved in everybody's turn because one person's reading and we're all listening to this encounter unfold. So I feel like I would miss that component of the gameplay a lot. Yeah, I don't. I'm I'm having uh, I'm having weird vibes now about uh, this game. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. <laughs> Br bring us back up, Ian. Keep going. Tell us something good. So, I mean, of course, it does have a campaign mode that you can play through, and that does seem to be kind of the prefer the preferred way of doing it because he does, you know, do that. And the, the game itself does actually have quite a, a solid backstory. You know, like there's you can read the whole setup for the world, and there's a much more there's a much more solid idea of where the game is going in terms of its story in this one. So I, I do like that. One of the things he has done is he's in incorporated a new element into the game where similar to above and below which did have a sort of building of your village with you know buildings that you could purchase there's actually in now or never while you still go adventuring on a main map your home base you actually have a tableau building sort of idea where there are set buildings out there that you can create and as you put more and more into your village each turn you're going to create resources and that's the end game condition is who can create the village that produces the most at one time so he kind of takes and ma mashes the two games a little bit together which has a you know a tableau building world while you're still going out and adventuring and it's, in, it's neat to see how he's combining aspects of both of these games another thing that he does that i think is really cool is he actually has a solo mode in this game something that he hasn't done previously mm -hmm. which i think is really cool seeing that we are seeing a lot more of those yeah that feels like something that near and far was probably missing uh, now that you've said it, I, I'm, I'm just, my mind is like thinking through, oh, like what if I could just leisurely play a game of near and far against like an AI, but they, it's not driving toward a conclusion. I can do as many little like adventures and scenarios as I want. That, that almost feels like an ideal way to play the game. So I love that he included a solo mode. Now that I'm kind of like, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm listening to you and kind of glancing back and forth at the BGG listing of the game. And, uh, it, it sort of feels like, okay, so his whole like thing as a designer, which I find fascinating, is he's sort of thrown out this idea that there's a distinction between the Euro and the Ameritrash tradition in games. There's, we, we don't just have games that are thematic and crunchy and full of conflict and games that are pastoral and calm and system-driven. He's like, these two worlds can live together, and he's been figuring out a way to mash those up in different ways. Like, Above and Below is like a Euro game, and a uh, adventure game that you dip in and out of, depending on what you're doing. Above and below is near and far. They're much more like firmly like intermeshed. And then in this game, it almost seems like you pick the way you want to play. Do you want to play like a standard game where it's like a Euro style tableau builder, fix the village, or do you want to do the story thing? But in both cases, it's like you're getting a, a, a mixture of experiences that draw from like all of board game traditions. And I think that's just 
one of the things that makes them so fascinating as a designer. The last thing I do want to touch on is the the board because above and below doesn't really have a board. You're not going out and adventuring. There's no central board that everyone is on, whereas near and far has the Atlas. He does away with the Atlas in Now or Never. Instead, you do have the adventure board, and the adventure board is two-sided, where you can either play on the above ground or you can play below ground in the underworld. So he gets rid of the Atlas. And I'm just curious, like, especially for you, Tori, we played... You know, we played both games. We played a lot of games in Near and Far. Are you going to miss the Atlas? Is that something you wish he'd come back to in Now or Never? Of course, we haven't played it yet, but, you know, that's something I was I was a little disappointed to see. That I, I get that you can control the space and make it a little bit more closely tied to the mechanics, but I liked the Atlas a lot. It was nice to get to, to play new things. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of every one of our game nights while we were doing that campaign was opening up the big red book and getting to flip to the page we were at and then examining the picture and saying, oh my gosh, we're in a sand ocean this time. So cool, you know? Um, so I'll miss that for sure. I guess it, it makes sense if the premise of the game is sort of building this village, right? That, you know, you'd want to have maybe more control over the board. But yeah, I don't know. I will miss that for sure. I will say, though, I'm excited about the theme of this one. I mean, I always think that the sort of world that Ryan Lockett creates is really compelling and interesting, and I just want to dive into it and learn everything I can about it. And I'm interested in the sort of dystopian tone of this one and this kind of like post-apocalyptic world yeah. almost that we're playing in. I think it's going to be pretty fun to explore. It's really cool, like you said, I'm excited to play this one at some point, and of course we'll have a lot more definitive stuff to say, but I think it is just interesting even looking at the initial impressions that people have had to see the progression and sort of how he's taken these mechanics and adjusted them over time, while, while still making very different games. They are clearly different games that have different things going for them. So I just want to ask you guys before we head out, like, which of the two games, Above and Below or Near and Far, which game do you personally prefer? And if you had the choice to play one right now, which would you play? Tori, you, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I feel like my answer is kind of obvious from what I've been talking about this whole time, but I love Near and Far. I love all the tactile sort of material components in the game. I mean, getting to hold these little red gems that I won from going down into the mines. It's it's really fun getting to just kind of mess with all the components of the game uh, and you sort of build this little satchel of goods on, on your personal player board and it's just fun. It feels very thematic. So yeah, I think I think Near and Far is my favorite. I love all the themes. I love sort of the complexities to it and I like that there is, when you play the campaign mode, there is more of that overarching story. And uh, I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. What about you, Matt? Oh, I was all set to say above and below until you reminded me of those little red gems. I love those things. <laughs> oh, I forgot all about them. They're so fun. They're so they're so satisfying to hold. To like The get. only thing Matt loves more than dice is gems. It's gems. It's true. You know, I like I like shiny things. Uh, you know, uh, so I guess I'm still going to say above and below just for the sake of creating some interesting discussion there. It's a, it's a harder call. It's not, they're not, cause it depends on the mood I'm in. I do. There's a lot of things about near and far 
that I really like. But I do appreciate uh, Above and Below's simplicity, uh, the ease to kind of get into it, the fact that it is not quite as inscrutable, the fact that you can dive into the adventures without as much buildup. I don't have to like traipse across the board to get to the first book and worry that somebody's going to get there. Uh, Above and Below is just a, an easier way to kind of have that experience um, if I'm not up for the kind of big near and far kind of feel. I would say that after you guys talked about it, if I could uh, if I could play the campaign with somebody, I'd be there for that. That sounds really fun. Yeah, the campaign is definitely the funnest part of it. And I, I think I would really like to go back to near and far because also, I mean, there's several ways to play that we didn't even get the chance to. I mentioned it earlier. There's a character campaign where instead of reading the from the, the main storybook, the character that you're playing has a very specific quest that you read in order and you actually get a progression of their personal story, which is a very interesting way to play. And then there's a whole co-op mode that is included as well. So near and far more so than above and below offers you different ways to play the, to play the game besides even just the campaign or normal game. There's often different approaches that change the, the way you approach it period, like a co-op mode. So I think in general, near and far has a lot more to it above and below like you said is just a, an easier game it's a lot more manageable if you just want to play something quick i think also not to again just go on and on about the art but it's really nice having pretty games on your display shelf at home so that people yes. come in and they you know it's a, it's a good conversation starter and it's a good way to get your friends to play games with you when you have these really beautiful games sitting on your shelf that's no, that's a completely like that's a super valid point. You know, when you are trying to sell somebody on this admittedly geeky hobby and you drop something on the table with like stereotypical like fantasy art and maybe like it just looks a little under I you don't want to have to like apologize for the art. It's like, yeah, okay, I know this looks a little bit like the side of a nineteen eighties Chevy van, like kind of art. <laughs> but like the game's fun. But this, these games are aesthetically pleasing, modern. There's, like, good representation. We haven't even talked about that. Like, he, mm. uh, the characters in the game are uh, a diverse mix of faces and uh, genders and, and different uh, skin tones and races. So it, it feels like a lively and diverse world. It feels like good representation. It's really good. It's very thoughtful. And I really appreciate Yeah, the art in the game are fantastic. Also, as we're uh, kind of just finishing up our thoughts, I think both of these games are fantastic. I think that Now and Never looks super good. I think it's worth saying, though, that low-key uh, Ryan Lockett's best game is Empire of the Void 2. But we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Lockett, just in general, absolutely my favorite designer. I will continue to play whatever he puts out with, and honestly, he hasn't missed yet. So here's my question. When are we getting our free game from Red Raven? What, what are they sending us for <laughs> this I, commercial the, we just the check, did for The check is in the mail. It is I'm, on its way. I'm, ta I'm tagging them and everything. And it's like, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan, play, you know, we'll review it. It's going to be a good review. There's almost no way we're going to give you a bad review. This crew. Yeah. I'm uh, just true. saying, we spent a whole hour just being like, everyone play Ryan Lockett games. They're so good. Yeah. Ryan Lockett is bae. Are people still saying that? I think if you're saying it, then people are saying it. You know what I mean? I think if I'm saying it, people are not saying it anymore. Like if it's, <laughs> oh. if it's, if I, if, it, if I've become aware of that particular bit of slang, it's over in, uh, in like, you know, elsewhere. That's the reality. 
This was fun, you guys. Thank you for having me on. It's 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 more fun than it seems, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I get now why. Uh... You know, it's it's kind of weird listening to Ian record normally by himself because he just like shuts the door to the office and then I just hear him laughing and yelling. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I had, I've had a very good time. It's just like we've been recording our conversations, you know, yes. for a year. Basically. It was super exciting to, to finally have you on. And I mean, you know, we may have just talked about how amazing the games are for an hour, but I I yeah. do think there's a lot to love about them. And yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Of course, hopefully we can have you on again soon. I do want to do maybe a, an episode about some game art. I think that'd be really cool. There is a lot of great art in games and we don't always focus on that a lot. So definitely hope to get you back on soon again. Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? They can find us on the Instagram at Dice Pirates. Uh, check us out there. We are uh, posting there throughout the week. Uh, reviews, updates on what we've been playing, uh, silly nonsense occasionally on the Instagram story. I'm the guy that runs the Instagram story, and I've been super busy at work lately. So the Instagram story has been very unlively and awful. And so I want to apologize to the people to the world. Uh, and so I'm going to try and do better. Uh, but check us out. We got a cool review up today from our buddy Aaron uh, reviewing Dwellings of Eldervale. And so, yeah, uh, check us out at Dice Pirates. As always, stay tuned next week. There will be a new Captain's Log with some more news. And then two weeks from now, we'll be coming out with another main episode. And I do hope at some point in October, we're going to do a Spooky Games episode. Keep an eye out for that. Thank you for listening, as always. And until then, we'll be right here on the Dice Pirates. Outro music. Outro music. Outro music.